Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Before anyone ever says anything in the form of preaching ever from here, we open these words and we read them to you. Anything that I say to you today had better accord with these words that I'm going to say to you. These are the words of the Lord, eternally true, inspired, breathed out by God. They're awesome. I'm reading a whole chapter to you from the book of Ruth. Hear the story. It's wild. Please don't miss how wild this is. Lean into the story with us, and then we'll unpack it together. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down to sleep, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down next to him. He will tell you what to do. She replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly at his feet and she lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. He turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Ah, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said to himself, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law said, how did you do? My daughter. And Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You can't go back empty handed to your mother in law. Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for this man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. Okay, the words of the Lord. I almost want to just send you home and just say, think about that story. 
My job is actually to help you understand it better so that you may believe it clearer, so that you may walk out of here and actually live it. That's what we're doing. So give your attention to me in this time and try and hear from the Spirit as he uses my words. All right, so we're preaching through the biblical book of Ruth, right? And we told you that it was a love story, but it was not the kind that you would expect. The first surprise in the story was what? That it was a story of a love between, wait for it, a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. And we just did not see that coming. That's not what you would expect. If you are in this room or on the live stream and you have a mother-in-law, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of her? Go. How many people thought of the word love as the first one? So sometimes that happens, but usually there's some other words that cram their way in there. And we were like, no, this is a love story of a daughter-in-law for her mother-in-law, Ruth is devoted to Naomi. Surprise. Okay, today we get our second surprise. Now we're going to see a man and a woman falling in love and moving toward marriage. But here's the surprise. They are moving toward marriage, not because Cupid flew by, papal, and hit them each with an arrow, not because they were at their friend's wedding and they saw each other from across the room and their eyes locked. Not because they are a perfect fit for each other, like Jack and Rose, or Jim and Pam, or Brady and Jess. That's not why. It's not because they both like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and making love at midnight in the dunes on the Cape. This is not why. That's what you've been expecting, this love story. This is not why. This is why. It's because they, Lauren, you know that song? I love you, Lauren. It's because they were both committed to living a life of love and service to others. And marriage was going to be a happy means toward that end. Another way to say that is to say this. The deepest root of this marriage that we're going to see is not romance but mission. All right, let's talk about marriage for a second. And please remember, when we do this, we are not trying to make anyone in the room who is not married feel like you are JV, right? That's not what this is. You can be completely happy and unbelievably useful to the mission of God while unmarried. I think there's 51 married couples in our church, but also dozens of folks who are not married. What we are trying to do is to build a culture here that rightly understands and esteems and practices marriage. And so that's why we talk about it at length together. That means that one of the most important questions we can ask is this one on the screen. Why marriage? What is marriage for? Okay? Jacob, when did you get married? What date? Go. No pressure. Wow! March 16th, 2000, 2001. You're a baby. All right. Why did you guys get married? Chris and Leslie, why did you get married? Jeremy and Rachel, uh, Jeremy and Tracy, why? Jim and Noel, why? Michael and Heather, why? 
Jared and Anna, with all your googly-eyed Instagram posts, why did you guys get married? Why? It's an important question, right? Why would a man and a woman covenant, promise to live together in a super deep, monogamous, all the way until one of us sins irreparably or dies relationship? Why would you do this? We better know why, because it's a pretty big commitment. All right, here's the Bostonian answer. I think you know it already, right? Here's why. It's for me and my happiness. That's what marriage is for. So I meet somebody, and I fall in love with them, and I want to be with them in every sense of the word. I want to share life, share bodies, share space, share the remote, share experiences. I want to be happy. They make me happy. So save the date. The word that we could use for that root, deep root of what marriage is for, is that it is for romance to exist. You saw Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation. Beckett, did you see this? You did? I figured that. Not surprisingly, it was not up for any Academy Awards, but <laughs> Adam Sandler is both a vampire and a widow. But he takes his family on a summer cruise vacation. And to his surprise, he falls in love with the cruise ship director lady. And he is caught off guard because he says, he says in the, in the animation, he says, oh, I didn't realize you could get zinged twice in life. And I heard that and I was like, that's it. This is the American view of love and marriage. You get zinged by someone, their zinging makes you happy, so you get married. What's the problem? That is not a very deep root for something as intense as marriage. It's one of the reasons that divorce is serial in American culture. If marriage is foundationally about me being happy, what do I do when that's not exactly happening any more. What do I do? I get out of the marriage. It's not serving its purpose of bringing romance and joy to my life any more. But then we come to the clear and compelling words of Scripture, and as always, we see a much better, much deeper, much more beautiful vision. Why marriage? What your Bible does is it does not downplay at all the awesomeness, the importance, the essentialness of romance in marriage, right? Just read the Song of Solomon or Genesis 2 or Proverbs 5. We were built to share affection for each other. But what the Bible does is it anchors marriage in something much deeper than that. Here's how we say it. We say marriage is for the advance of the gospel or the advance of God's purposes in the world. Marriage is a means of a man and a woman coming together to build a life where not only their sons and daughters, but tons of other people can be loved and served and helped and led to the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. 
We see this in the first Bible, that marriage that's mentioned in the Bible, right? When Eve is given to Adam, it's not just so that the two of them could romp around in the garden together. That wasn't the bottom line of this union. It was so that they could build a fruitful home and a holy culture in that garden that would emanate out to the world for the good of the world. In other words, marriage has always been missional at its core. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith says this uh, in its section where it's trying to answer the question, why marriage? The first answer says this, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and the wife. That's what it's for. I love that. When do you need help in life? It's when you're going for something big and huge, right? When you're trying to accomplish something that's beyond your ability to just do it on your own. Marriage has been given to us. This is what the folks who wrote that confession of faith, they said. When we open our Bibles, it appears to us that marriage has been given to us for something deeper than just being zinged. It is about two lives coming together to become one life through which the gospel advances in countless ways. We are called by God to that mission, and marriage is a means of doing that well. Just a side note, as always with God, if that's true, then romance flourishes. There is no more of a turn on for a couple than to know we have been invited by God into the advance of his gospel for eternal purposes in this world. Come here, let me kiss you. That's the way this is meant to work. All right, what we're going to see today is that there is no couple in the Bible that puts this truth on more beautiful display than Boaz and Ruth. Their love is about more than just their happiness. It's about doing good for another and thereby seeing the gospel advance. You got the setup? All right, let's unpack the words. I'll give you the context. If you were reading this story for the first time, when you were done with chapter two, what's the number one question you would be asking yourself? This is it. Is anything going to happen between Boaz and Ruth? That's the question that you are asking yourself. We saw them connecting in the fields for the whole harvest, and we were like, hey, 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 maybe one thing could lead to another for these two? I mean, I know he's older, and she's a Moabite, and there's some reasons, maybe not, but you are pulling for it, right? You're like, did he catch her eye? Does he happen to wander over to the part of the field that she's in like 13 times a day? Have they got some inside jokes going? Is there some love blossoming? Man, I hope so. But then you get to the end of the chapter and you go, oh no, the harvest season is over. They're not going to be seeing each other anymore. What's going to happen with Ruth and Boaz? I don't know, but I, I don't know why, but I thought right away of that summer night song from Greece, you know, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, they're like doing their thing all summer long, but now it's September 1st and it's time for school. 
it turned colder. That's where it ends. So I told her, we'd still be friends. And you're like, no, I don't want them to just be friends. I want something more. You feel it? That's where you should be at the end of this. I want to see them get together, but how in the world could this ever happen? It's impossible. How is she going to get alone with him? He is a wealthy, rich landowner. There's no shot to get an audience with him. He's older. She's younger. He thinks he has no shot with this beautiful young woman. So he's not even thinking she would be interested. She doesn't have a father or a brother to open the conversation. How is this thing going to get done? How would this ever happen? Enter the mother-in-law. Here's what we read. Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? All right, Bostonian translation, Ruth, I love you, and I want to see you get settled in life. What are we supposed to see right here in this part of the story? It's a total shock. Naomi is alive again. Ruth has loved her back to life. She was so down and cynical, and now there's gospel optimism. Remember their walk back from Moab? She said, don't come with me. Don't come with me. I will never be able to find you a godly husband. Don't come. And now her whole outlook has changed, and she's going, I got this. I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to make this happen. Boaz, we're going to do this. Naomi then does what dozens of seven-mile road parents will be doing in the next 10 or 15 years, which is she finds a plan to get these kids together. That's what she does. She plays matchmaker, and it's an elaborate plan. A couple of things to point out. One is this. Thoughtful, strategic planning is not manipulation, okay? You're supposed to feel this right now. Where are our big-time planners in the room? Raise your hand. I know what I'm doing the next three months. My Google Calendar looks like Lucky Charms. There's just a rainbow of colors everywhere. It's all planned out. It's going to be awesome, and I know what I'm doing. I love you. <laughs> Where are our non-planners in the room? It's only 10 a.m. Do not ask me what I'm doing at 10.30, because I don't know yet. All right, we need to learn to live with each other, right? It's strange, but it's not necessarily sinful either way. The sin would be this. If you non-planners scold or judge or are harsh with you planners, or you planners scold or harsh or are judge with you non-planners. And in this story, we're given a planner, and we're supposed to go, hey, there's no reason to have an attitude with someone who schemes. Scheming can be gospel-centered. Planning can be an act of great love. It's okay to think about what could happen. Naomi does it, and if Naomi is not a gospel-centered planner, nothing happens in this story. So we want to receive that and celebrate Naomi in it. And then the second thing is this. It's a good plan. All right, let's walk through the five steps so that you know it when it unfolds for you. 
First thing she said, number one, Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. $100 bill for anybody who knows what winnowing barley means. I didn't think so. So the best I could tell, this is what you would do. There was a threshing floor. It was like a plateau, but it was set up high where the wind would blow. And you would go up there with your bundles of grain, and you would pound it on the ground, and then you would flick it in the air, and when the breeze came by, the chaff would blow away, and the kernels would drop to the ground. You'd scoop up the kernels, put them in a bucket, and do it again and again and again all night long. That's the work that these men were doing on the threshing floor. And Boaz was the leader of this whole joint, and so he wouldn't have been there every night doing menial labor, but this night he was going to be there. And when you went there to work in the evening when the winds were blowing, you would sleep there to guard all of the grain or the barley that you had been harvesting. So she knows Boaz is going to be there, and he's going to sleep there. And her mind starts racing. Okay, number two. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. All right, so when you read this, you're not supposed to think she's putting on like the skimpiest cocktail dress that Suzanne's got in her entire closet, okay? That's not the one that we're going to go find in there. It is not her dressing up in that kind of a way to like grab his attention like she was going to a friend's wedding and she wanted to get with the, the best man. Ruth and Boaz have only seen each other in what context? Hot, sweaty, sun-baked hard work, right? The only time that he has seen her, she's been sweating, her hair's been up, her hands have been dirty, she's been a total mess. That's the only time that he has seen her. And no deodorant in those days, right? So she probably smelled funky and he did too. That's just how harvest work would work. But on this night, we don't want Ruth going smelling funky. We want her smelling nice, being washed and clean. So Naomi says, take a hot bath. Anoint yourself. Get yourself in your most naturally beautiful and attractive sense so that you might be accessible to him so he may know what is going on when you get there. Does everyone feel it? Even cloak here would not have been like a sexy dress. It would have been something more appropriate to go and to sleep that night in. So Naomi is going to present herself to Boaz in a way that is pure but is beautiful is attractive, is warm. Does everybody feel it? Um, we're doing our, I don't know, we were doing our basement too, but we took down all the drop ceilings, you know, in our basement. Have you guys seen Ratatouille? Remember when he shot holes in the ceiling of that lady's house and there was 1,600 rodents living up there? So we found out that we had that going on in our basement because every one of these drop ceilings had like a pound and a half of compost in it from the mice. Well, when we were done with that work, and can you believe this, side note, Suzanne and Lynn came over to help with this work. Can you believe that? Everybody looked like a mile of bad road. And then we had people coming over that night, and I was like, what? I need to take a shower. Do you feel it? That's what happens. That's what's happening in these verses. Okay, all right. Number three. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. This is totally brilliant. 
If you're pitching a man on something, do you want to talk to him when he is hangry? Yes or no? That's the worst possible time to do business, right? So she says, no, no, no. Harvest time is a celebration. Let him eat his dinner. Let him drink his wine with the folks who are working. Let him sing the campfire songs. Let him go to bed happy. I want you approaching him when he's in his best mood. You feel it? All right, number four. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. You got to pay attention to him. Don't take your eyes off him. Follow him around that threshing floor because you don't want to go lay down next to the wrong guy. That's not how we want this to work. Keep your eyes on Boaz. It's crucially important that he's the one that you're going to wake up. Everybody got it? And then number five, then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. So wait until it's dark. Wait until everybody's sound asleep. Then go up real close and next to him and just uncover either his lower half or his feet, whichever that word means, and wait. There's two reasons she would be doing this. Number one would be that's a way of awakening him without having to give him an elbow. His feet uncovered would get cold and he would shiver in the night. And number two, she's right there. So when he shivers, she is unmistakably present. Naomi has set this up beautifully. There's an exit strategy. If it all goes wrong, nobody's going to know that Naomi was there. Naomi is being bold, Ruth, that Ruth was there. Ruth is being bold, but she is being pure and careful and humble. Naomi has done everything she can to set this up that God might intervene and do something beautiful from it. All right, here's what we read next. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Does everybody feel the tenseness of this whole scene? Ruth did not sleep a wink. Her heart was beating out of her chest. Is this going to work? How is he going to respond? Anybody ever proposed marriage before? So I did this in December of 1994. Um, we were at a beach in Nahant. And on our way toward the beach, we stopped at the Nahant something, which was a possible place where we could have had our wedding reception. I don't remember a single thing about the Nahant Country Club, because I was there, but my heart was going like this. I was like, can we please get to the beach? And I had this little ring in my pocket, but it weighed like 200 pounds on me the whole time because I was so nervous. What is about to happen? Until finally we got to the moment of proposing. That's Ruth right now. She is laying there. Her heart is racing. She's trying to think through her words, wondering, how is this going to go? So awesome. Everybody feel it? All right. As you read, you're supposed to go, oh, what's going to happen next? Don't pause it. Let it play. At midnight, 
the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. It's the last thing that he would have been expecting on the threshing floor with all these men who were doing this work. And he said, who are you? Um, he didn't know it was a woman necessarily at first, right? Is this an enemy? Is someone about to knife me? What is going on? Who is this? And here her answer, it's so beautiful. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. This is a marriage proposal. There's three ways that we know from the words. Number one, she uses a different word than had been used previously for servant. This is the word maiden. In other words, a young, available, single woman. She uses that word to him. She's sending a message. Then she says, spread your wings over me. That word wings is also the word for garment. It's a Hebrew word, and it means to cover me in the sense of preparing to take me to be yours in marriage. The other time that we see this metaphor used is in the book of Ezekiel. The Lord is speaking to his people and he says, when I saw that you were old enough for love, I married you. I spread my garment or my wings over you. So by using these words, Ruth is echoing that Hebrew theme of marry me, spread your garment, take me under your wings. And then she says, for you are a redeemer. When she says these words, she is communicating her bottom line motivation for pursuing this marriage. It is not only about her happiness or her future. It is about Naomi's too. In other words, by saying, marry me because you are a redeemer, she is saying, I am all in on this marriage being for a bigger purpose. The redemption of this family line into the future. This sense of calling that she had to show Hesed love to Naomi and Naomi's God. Ruth sees this marriage as being a part of some good gospel purposes being accomplished in Bethlehem. That is the root of her proposal. Do you feel it? She doesn't say flattery about how handsome he is. She doesn't say, hey, I fell in love with you that day that you walked through the barley fields. She says, spread your wings over me because you are a redeemer. And you and I pursuing marriage will lead to a beautiful redemption. Does everyone feel it? Boaz is not put off by that at all. He is moved by it. He is drawn into it. Here's what he said to her. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or 
rich. I don't know why it's all movie illustrations today, but have you seen Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that right away. At the end of the movie when Lloyd says to the beautiful girl, do I have any shot with you? And she goes, I'm sorry, Lloyd, no. It would be like one in a million. And he goes, so you're saying I got a shot. Boaz is totally shocked that someone as young and virtuous and free and beautiful as Ruth, totally out of his league, she is moving toward him in love. He can't believe it. And he knows what it is about. It is not primarily because she had a thing for older guys or her heart was fluttering over this idea of marrying someone probably 15 to 20 or more years older than her. He knows that's not it. If romance is the bottom line of this, she's being foolhardy. He will be gone long before they could enjoy that life. He knows it's about the good that their marriage could accomplish. You feel this when he says, this kindness, your being willing to marry me, is even deeper and crazier than the first one. What was the first one? Leaving Moab behind to accompany Naomi to Bethlehem to help her with her life. This is even crazier, binding yourself to an older man, ensuring widow, widowhood again for yourself in the near future. You're willing to do this out of love for Naomi. You feel it? Boaz knows if Ruth was going for her happiness, there would be someone who is a much better fit, according to eHarmony, right? Boaz would not have popped up in that profile. No shot. That was happening. Her marriage, though, has to be to a potential redeemer. It has to. And so she says, you are the one who can marry me in a way that accomplishes gospel purposes. She bypasses what is best for her, for what is best for Naomi. And he does the same. He says this to her. It's so awesome. Lie down until the morning. Oh, did we skip the one that says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you? He says to her, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. At this point, you should just be crying on the couch, right? Just pounding the popcorn and like, I can't believe this movie. Wow. He's going to do it. She's going to do it. This is so awesome. In other words, Boaz is all in on marriage as a missional reality. We see this in what happens next. So I haven't been pressing this, but the scene is totally sexually charged. Totally. All the words that have been used, lie down, uncover his feet, all of these words would be very double entendres in the Hebrew. Beautiful woman, handsome rich man, alone in the dark, it is sexually charged. Very possible that he would take advantage of her, or he's so holy he wouldn't do that, but the two of them may stumble into a sexual time together. You're supposed to be thinking that as you hear these words. Boaz won't do it, and neither will Ruth. This is what we read. He said, lie down until the morning. 
That word in Hebrew is the word lodge, and it is a purposefully non-sexual word. With his language to her, he was saying to her, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to rush romance ahead of the rightness of this marriage. Stay, but you're safe with me. That's a whole nother sermon, but the point is that this missional mindset for what marriage is for means that they are both obviously committed fully to our marriage starts our sexual relationship. Our sexual relationship is going to flourish in the context of a marriage that is about something bigger and deeper and more than that. That's the Bible's vision, and they live it so beautifully. Would they make wild love for the next 10 or 15 years? 100%. But that making of love is within the context of a greater mission. The chapter ends with these words. Who thinks Ruth slept that night? She might have just crashed, like, against his shin or something. I don't know. Who thinks Boaz slept that night? You're on drugs if you think Boaz slept that night. Trust me, the man did not sleep. He was waiting for the sun to come up with his heart racing. Who else didn't sleep that night? Did Naomi sleep that night? Oh, man, she stared at her phone. Come on, where's the notification? Nobody slept that night in this story. She comes home, and she's got a giant, giant bag of barley. She creaks open the door as the sun is rising. Naomi is staring at her like this, waiting for the door to open. How did you fare, my daughter? These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. What is this gift symbolizing? His intention to play the man, to do the right thing, to take Naomi as his wife and to provide a line for, to take Ruth as his wife and to provide a line for Naomi. Okay, spoiler alert, but I hope that you have read the book of Ruth 20 times already this month. We're going to see this. Boaz and Ruth do get married. It's a little dicey next week, but they actually get there. And Boaz and Ruth do have a son. And that son not only redeems Naomi's life, but that son is in the line of Christ. I'm not kidding. Do you feel this? Their marriage and their willingness to enter into that marriage, not on their own terms, not for their own happiness, leads to Christ. Do you feel it? And that is what every marriage is meant to do. This is why Christians have a super high vision for marriage. Every marriage is meant to accomplish that in echo effect, to lead to Christ. All right, 50 application questions your gospel community can think about. I'm just giving you one and we'll finish. Here it is. There's 51 people married in this church right now. No, 
There's 102 people married. There's 51 marriages. What would change? I want you to ask yourself this question. What would change if we really believed that our marriages were meant to lead others to Christ? Do you believe that God could accomplish something big through your marriage? Did Boaz and Ruth have any clue that their marriage was going to lead to Christ, literally? No clue. Nobody ever saw what God was going to do coming. It's the same way with us. We never know what God could accomplish for his purposes in our lives, in our world. And that's true in a 100 things. But it needs to be true of your vision for your marriage. This is why we went off celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Were you a part of that day? This was the olden days when we were allowed to have 180 people in this room. Why did we celebrate so much? Is it because they have a perfect marriage? Spoiler alert, <laughs> I can be the one to tell you not how that thing goes down. Is it because they were a perfect fit for them, for each other? Ah. No, no, this was 1969. They met in June. They got married in August. If Match.com was a thing, the computer would have been set on fire before it matched Glenn Cruz with Margaret Oliver. That was not going to happen, trust me. But what have they decided to do for 50 years? They have decided to say our marriage is about more than how much we like each other today. Our marriage is about the advance of the gospel through our sons, our home. And then we sit here 50 years later and we go, oh, look how much the gospel has advanced. Look how many people have been led to Christ just through one marriage. Who would have ever have dreamed it? Do you feel it? This is what I want for you and for me and for the marriages in our church. Let's pray for it together. Father, you're the best, the best. Forgive us for forgetting you are infinitely wise and infinitely good and infinitely loving. You have designed things so that we commit to marriage. And then in there, we not only get the delights of romance, but we get the deeper delights of seeing the gospel advance in the lives of our sons and daughters and neighborhood and city and church. It's the best thing. I pray that you would lift the vision of marriage in this church. I pray that you would help us to endure harder seasons. I pray for folks who have been divorced as they grieve that and so many of those divorces in our church have been lawful and yet horrible. And I pray that they would see the hope of the gospel in the marriages around them and possibly for themselves, if you would have it. Hear my prayer for that. I pray for the younger people in this church that they would see marriage as a divine institution for the good of the world and for their good too. And they would approach it purely and with great vision and hope. 
I know that our world sees these things differently, Lord. So I pray that we would be like a city on a hill that lights up with a different way of doing life. Father, there may be some marriages in our church that are on real rocky ground. And I pray that you would have mercy. And I pray that both parties would be convinced of the greater purpose of that marriage. And that it holding is right and best. And that romance can be found in the midst of the pursuit of the mission of God. We are so beset by weakness in these things. So I'm just asking today that you would bring some kind of gospel strength and that we would have the vision for it. Would you hear my prayer for these things and answer? Thanks for this model in your word. It's so helpful to us. We receive it together. Amen.